Welcome to Coffee and Poets. This is the 24th iteration of Coffee and Poets here at Naked Lounge in Sacramento. And I'm Bob Stanley. I'm your host today. And I am with Catherine Holvine, the, the wonderful poet, organizer, <laughs> activist, professor, and inspiration to many poets all over the world. So uh, welcome. Thank you. We're going to just talk about poetry for about an hour and go many places. So I just, how do you feel? When did poetry grab you and how did it grab you? Um, you want to get back that far? If you want. <laughs> it's a long time ago. I always loved it. I, I mean, I you know, I think I loved Hickory Dickory Dock. You know, I think I always loved it because I read it always, loved it. I don't remember a starting point. So you just you've always written, just, you've always, always read, and it. written. I've always loved it. Yeah. So I heard a description of you. This is jumping maybe yeah. a few years back ahead, closer to current time. As a scholar, one of your students said she remembers you coming in with a huge sheaf of papers. I think it was either the Iliad or the Odyssey. No doubt. And it was and it was held together with a rubber band, a loose rubber band. And she remembers you taking the rubber band off, and the papers fell out <laughs> everywhere. Of course, they had to. And so, and so it was kind of this amazing uh, spread of papers. And, and the student, I think it was Linda Radican. I don't know if you remember Linda. I do. So um, she said that you had written like almost every line that you had annotated and written between the lines and under the lines and on top oh. of the lines, so much so that the the original text was almost impossible to read. <laughs> no wonder I messed it up when I was reading it. <laughs> well, and, but what she said was that at that moment, she kind of understood what it meant to be a scholar, oh. what it meant to uh, to go into something so deeply. And yeah. so, and so maybe you could talk a little bit about that that depth that you with go that for. that need to write marginalia in everything. It really gets in my way. It makes a mess out of my books. Um, those those papers were always flying around, and I've got pictures of that some students took of me with these marks in the Iliad or any or the Odyssey, and there are just so many. I don't even know which how I tried to discern which one I should use. You know, um, it's just a, a excitement about reading it and learning, and uh, as I got better and more knowledgeable about Homer, the works got more complex, so I had to change the color of ink. <laughs> so I got, you know, red was a little later and, and all the question marks, and then I have all kinds of things like, be sure and see this. You know, that means I have to look up something. So it's a, ma it's a matter of, um, of just close attention, really. So just digging into it close and attention. asking a lot of questions. It just. Building on what you know. I mean, I started out as a real ignoramus about uh, Homer. I knew nothing. I'd never taken a course, never read the poems, and didn't know anything at all. They asked me at Ohio State University to teach a humanities course, which I had to teach the Iliad. I was just absolute babe in arms, knew nothing. So the, I'm sure the first time I taught it, I did what probably everyone does, which is talk about the plot and the characters insofar as you can figure them out, you know. But then if you do that for 30 years, as I did, you get to know more than the plot, more than the characters, and more than the 
name of the meter is it Homer wrote in and that sort of thing. So I, I just build on it. And then the readers of Homer was born too. So well, yes. And that's been around for maybe almost twenty years now. Well, since nineteen ninety eight. Yeah, I was as soon as I retired from Sac State. Some, you know, I taught that course. You know that for thirty years, which was some of you wouldn't know that, but um, a graduate course that they let me teach at uh, Sac State for graduate students, which was just preposterous. And by that, I mean that I'm not a classicist. I'm really not. I mean, I'm, that's not humble modesty. That's an absolute fact. I'm not a classicist. That doesn't mean I don't love Homer. I do. And it doesn't mean I couldn't learn from it, learn how to talk about it. But I'm sure I never learned Greek. And so that, that really makes me a non-classicist in everybody's. And um, so somehow, I think, in the 60s and early 70s, there was this sort of latitude and grace of allowing people to teach what they loved. If you were lucky enough to be, you know, on the faculty, that was what we were talking about earlier. And so my, uh, Ted Hornback kindly let me teach this. I said, I love to teach it. Okay, you can. He said, and I did. And that's the way it was in the 60s. It will never be that way again. If I were trying to get this course, even now, even with my record, I could not, because I'm not a scholar in that way. I was a personal scholar with my books, certainly not a um, recognized Homer scholar, but I am recognized now as the creator of the readers of Homer, you know, which is not really scholarly. It's not. It doesn't try to be. It doesn't want to be. <laughs> well, the readers of Homer is not scholarly. It's it's absolutely a participatory collective group experience. And it is the experience of Homer, that's for sure. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't try and make it academic. I don't want it to be. So when I do a reading, and if any of you have been to any of them, I um, I never say a thing. I don't go on about who Homer was, if he, if he was. Um, you know, I mean, there's even debate on whether he existed. But somebody existed who made them, so that's a name will do. So anyway, uh, so um, it's a participatory reading where everyone knows their lines in advance so that it flows very smoothly. And they may be people who never like poetry, who certainly never have read Homer. Some of them are poets, some of them are scholars, some of them are translators, uh, some of them are medical doctors. But we also have uh, the majority of people who just sort of thought it sounded interesting. And they, they might be artists or they might be very sensitive to language or to the spoken word or whatever, or even to the Greeks. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> or uh, to any of that, to Troy, the idea of Helen, uh, of Troy, and so forth. But they think something grabs their interest, and so they sign on to do this little five minutes worth of reading, and uh, they know in advance what they have to read. That's crucial. Otherwise, it would be a mess, wouldn't it? You yeah. know, it would just be a mess. And, and uh, so this runs very, very smoothly. I never give one single sentence of academic introduction, nothing. Um, don't need to. Or he communicates. Why, why bother? You know. 
So it was just a chance for people to kind of bathe in the language and, and stay for an hour or... No, how, they it stay, it's all hours? night long. Well, there, long. I've got several. It's been going on since 98, so yeah. I've got editing. I have to do the editing, which is sort of heroic, if I say so myself. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's so big, you know, big poems. And so it's a horrendous job to try and get it down. See, in ancient times, it used to take three days, and they'd read everything. But now no one will stay for three days. I mean, we, it's hard to keep them for 10 hours. But they do stay. That's what's remarkable. So anyway, I've got editing down to 16 hours. That was, we did that in Montevideo. That was really long, but it worked. Uh, to 12 hours was very common, either all night or during the day. That works fine. 10 hours, a little bit shorter, a little bit more truncated. Cut out some things I didn't want to cut out. And that works fine. And then they wanted it seven hours. And I thought, well, I don't want this to be highlights of Homer. You know, seven hours, that's just not enough, was my thinking. And uh, But I cut it down to seven, and it worked. Now, I wouldn't cut it any lower because you cut out too much that's valuable. And this. Now you've done them all over the world. What are some of the ones, some of the places where you've done them that you just remember as just... Well, we've been very fortunate. Um, I say we because Laura has helped me so much and my son, Ron Hart, has helped me. And we've had a, a nonprofit organization back in New York. Um, we've done it three times in New York. All of them quite wonderful, I do believe. Um Amazing. <laughs> and one of the most prestigious one was uh, the 92nd Street Y, which is really a big deal. It's a famous poetry venue. It's a right? famous yeah. everything. I mean, yeah. you're in the footsteps of Einstein. and everybody. Not that I am, but I mean, it, people like that have given their first lectures there or their first um, announcement as to some great invention and so forth. So it was very... Um, lucky and expensive that we um, <laughs> managed to get accepted there. So in New York, uh, Los Angeles recently, uh, but the bigger ones have been out of the country. We've done it twice in Sacramento, too. Um, three times in Sacramento. And I need to do it again because I have people saying, when are you going to do it again? Oh, we should. You know, I'm, and they're ready. And it's just a matter of organizing. It's a huge undertaking. It really is big. And, and but the big, we, with a staff, not a staff, a group of people who are willing to be enthusiastic help. Uh, we've had huge readings in Montevideo, in um, Brussels for the European Commission, in London at the Getty Villa. Down in Malibu, that was sensational. Oh, nice. That was sensational. At uh, and my my personal favorite were some of the Greek islands, and my my very favorite, the most beautiful one of all, was at um, the island of Kos, where there are a lot of refugees coming in right now. The island of Kos in the northern Aegean, very near the Turkish coast. It was so magnificent because it was the. Um, uh, we were sort of the centerpiece of the Hippocratic Festival. And the Hi Hippocrates is the father of medicine, and so it was considered like a healing 
experience, which I honestly think it kind of is, you know. And so it was put at the center of the Hippocratic Festival on the island of Kos in a medieval castle all night long with the moon shining down. And it was, we had everyone you could imagine, dentists, 10-year-olds, 6-year-olds. I mean, we, that six-year-old is almost the iconic image that we have. Priests, Greek Orthodox priests who fought over who should be first. <laughs> <laughs> and that was a big deal. And we had to really struggle to figure that out. And then tourists. And we had many languages. We had, a, it was, a you know, when if I do something in a country, um, a foreign country that's not English-speaking, then I want to do it in the language of that country, which doesn't mean I'm a superb linguist. I, I don't know the language at all. But what I do, since it's so great, what I love about this, I'm going to talk too long about it. See, that's your problem. I, <laughs> I mean, I just can go and go and go. But, I mean, the thing is, it is um, translated. Homer's translated everywhere, like the Bible. So, I mean, I can just count on the fact that there's going to be a translation in Portuguese, there's going to be one in Icelandic, there's, uh, there's going to be one in um, Swahili, and there is. Now, the question is if they're any good or not, the translations, and I'm not qualified to to say they are or not. So I have to get somebody who is qualified, and that's usually a, a professor of classics who is a classicist and can fill me in there. So, so then I, I find and consult with that person, I ask him or her, um, is there a good translation in Mandarin of Homer? And they say yes. Is that translator living? Yes or no? Uh, could I talk to him or her? Yes. And, and, with, and then go from there. And then uh, with that translation, I get people who know the native language and follow my editing to find out what it sounds like in Spanish or French. Or Danish or whatever. So in the island of coast, which I was just speaking of, um, we had every language. We had Hebrew, Mandarin, Japanese, German. How does that work? That people can understand it. It we have um, backup of um, PowerPoint in the language of the country. So the PowerPoint of in the island of coast would of course be Greek. Once again, I don't speak it. I couldn't edit it. I don't even hardly know how to say hello in it. And But then somebody has helped me to get that in PowerPoint there. So everyone who's Greek in the audience can read it. And even if they sleep or get up and go to the bathroom or leave or smoke, uh, they can come back and see it in, in the language, their language. So what happens if, say, you've got a Chinese journalist like I did have, um, he loved Greek literature, and particularly Homer. He knew classical Greek, I mean ancient Greek. And he said, okay, I'll get, do the lines that you have written, or you have edited, and I'll do them in Mandarin. So he just stands up there, reads them in Mandarin. All the people seeing it just read it in their native language. That's how that works, and it's very effective. And I, I could do it with any language in the world, but I always have to say, is this a good translation? By which I mean, is it, was it written in the 17th century? Was it translated in the 17th century? Or is it now? Is it the language people are speaking? 
or is it sound Victorian and weird and boring? Um, and and uh, I won't do it if it's all silly sounding, because then it would never communicate. It has to be close to the heart of the people in the language that they love. And so I I do essentially very recent translations. Uh, you know, nothing, I don't think I've done one before um, the turn of the 20th century, except Alexander Pope's Iliad. I did a bit of that, um, but uh, just a bit because I knew that that language would be too bizarre. And the rhythm and the rhyming and everything is just too bizarre. Besides, it's not very Homeric in that way. So you want it to be natural. It's got to be. It's got to be understandable, comprehensible. They've got to be able to enjoy it. And you don't. How much could you enjoy, of um, even Shakespeare challenging, right? You know, I'm yeah. so so. I mean, all night long. Oh my God, impossible. So I have to find out if there's a good translation. If the translator is willing to have me do it, um, if someone will help me get it in PowerPoint, if there's a squad of people who will help get people to come, and if there are ushers and people who do Greek music and Greek food and Greek lighting, and, you know, it's got to be, it's a big deal. And consequently, I never have enough money for it. So that's, that's, a, that's a reality. But uh, I've got wonderful ideas. <laughs> Want to hear them? <laughs> <laughs> but, yes, but I have a question, though. Yeah. Since you've, you've written poetry. You've taught poetry in many countries. You've been all over the world. I'm reading your book about yeah. being oh, yeah. in Taiwan oh, right yes. now. Mm. And I've heard stories about, you know, in South America that poets are a big deal. And, in, yeah. and, and there was just a poet who was elected. A bunch of poets were elected officials in Myanmar. Yeah, exactly. I saw that. So I'm just wondering, what is, how is poetry viewed in other countries? Is it still well, Latin America? I mean, is very famous for just adoring their their poets and honoring them and naming. For example, in Uruguay, where we read, there's so many young men named Homer, <laughs> which it just sounds silly. It sounds silly, but it just shows that it's very honored. And um, it's emotionally precious to them. We don't have that. Um, and I can't speak for every country in the world. I know Iran. I know that the Middle Eastern countries, Iran particularly, is very um, in love with their ancient, their old uh, poets. It varies around the world. But we're, we've got a lot of young, we've got a lot of good poets here. You know all about that. No, bit. but I mean, yeah. we, we do. Yeah. We have many people who are wonderful writing. And consequently, that means a lot of people who love poetry listening and buying the books. Yeah, they're still... But, but, but it doesn't mean the general population uh, grew up with it, say, like the uh, people in Peru or, yeah. or, you know, Brazil and so forth. Now, a couple of poets you mentioned in, I think it was in Landing Signals here, you mentioned that, I like to think that loving and teaching Homer has cleansed and encouraged my writing. And then you say, courage from beauty. That's what it's about for me. It, that poetry gives us courage from beauty. And, and I'm wondering in the, I was kind of thinking about that line in the context of, you know, what we're going through now with the terrorism and the, the world and how... How poetry fights that in some way? Oh, what a big question, Bob. 
I would love to be able to say that it made the difference. I'd love nothing more than to say that art is what will save us. You know, I'd love nothing. I believe it in my from my own personal little perspective, but I I don't I don't think I believe it anymore. I think I did believe it for a long time. Uh, maybe in the great long run of the amplitude of time, the the art will somehow save us. You know, but I mean, boy, we need big time saving. Did you bring anything to read? Do you have any poems? <laughs> I I brought I brought um, something that I read, which is I'm only reason I'm reading it is not I didn't write it. Okay, is that all right? Yeah. Um, it's a poem by a stranger, somebody named Brendan Constantine. Never heard of him in my life until somebody sent me this. Um, he teaches in prisons, American teaches with Alzheimer's and so forth. And I just got this today from a friend who sent it. And uh, because the Parisian tragedy, I love Paris a lot and have friends there and got proposed to there and everything was, it's important to me. And um, so um, this, this tragedy this weekend has really been kind of horrible, you know, personally. But anyway, so my friend knew that I felt that way about Paris and sent me this poem by this stranger, Brendan Constantine. The Needs of the Many. On the days when we wept, and they were many, we did it over the sound of a television or radio of the many engines of the sky. It was rarely so quiet we could hear our sadness, the smallness of it. That is merely the sound of wind and water between the many pages of the lungs. Many afternoons we left the house still crying and drove to a cafe or the movies, dumb under the many eyes of Paul Clay. There were many umbrellas, days when it refused to rain and cups of tea ignored. We washed them all in the sink, dry-eyed. It's been a while. We're cried out. We collect pauses and have taken to reading actual books again. We go through them like yellow lights, like tunnels or reunions. We forget which. The older you are, the more similes, the more pangs per hour. Indeed, this is how we break one hour into many how healing wounds time in return. And though we know there will always be crying to do, just as there is always the song, always a leaf somewhere in the car, this may be the only sweetness left to have a few griefs we cherish against the others, which are many. That's a poem by Brendan Constantine. Brendan Constantine. I just got it today, and I just thought it was appropriate. Wow, thank you. So uh, so we're here at, at Coffee and Poets on November the 15th. 2015 with Catherine Holvine, and I'm Bob Stanley. So she just read a, a wonderful poem. You mentioned that there's a lot of a, a lot of good young poets writing today. I, I won't say just young. There are a lot of good American poets. A lot poets. of good American poets. Anybody... Okay. Uh, pop into your head is just somebody that you kind of see. Annie Mina Broker sitting right in front of us. <laughs> 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 no.
No, and that's true. They're in our midst, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, I do too. And that includes you, yeah. Bob. Well, yeah, I, I read a lot of local poetry. Well, and, yeah. yeah, you know, and so I, I, I think it's everywhere in the country and in big and small towns and certainly in the big cities. It's just that we don't nurture it in our culture in a funny way, different. We don't nurture it really. Uh, you know, in a broad way, in the educational system and and so forth. So many teachers, if I can say so, wreck poetry for their students. They just ruin it. So that so the and and I know there are good ones, but I'm just saying that there are so many who who are afraid of poetry, and you know it's sort of to be afraid of because it's it requires a certain way of reading. It requires a certain concentration. Uh, it requires a, a little pause and attitude towards life and just a deep breath. And it's so concentrated. That's the thing. Poetry is so concentrated that you can't race through it. Or if you do, you miss it. You know, so I think that that kind of private concentration is not nurtured in our, basically, in our educational system. And uh, somehow in the culture, we are unlike the Latin Americans who seem to love it deeply in their hearts and need it. Well, Constantine's line, too, um, about we read books and we run through them like, like yellow, yellow lights. Wasn't that a good line? Right, we're just in a hurry. Yeah. And so the poem just like is barely like, get through it. You yeah. Know? So we just kind of yeah. read it. Okay, good. I got that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Precisely. Rather that was my reaction it. exactly yeah. to that line. And um, so, you know, I don't think it's hopeless. I never would give up because I have had too many students and too many friends who get nourished deeply and get courage from the beauty of poetry. I don't mean just poetry, but music and dance and all the arts, architecture, all, all the arts, a cello, you name it. But I'm speaking now particularly about poetry and, and language. Um, I do think, I don't even think it just necessarily has to come from beauty. I think it can be courage from ugliness. I mean, it can be courage from roughness. Courage, for, it's what it is the truth. It's a courage that comes from a tr deeply held and truly spoken attitude of some sort. So, I mean, it, that to me is beautiful. I suppose that's what I meant by the quote. Um, it's not just the pretty poetry. Good heavens, who wants, who wants that? You know, <laughs> that's actually boring. Uh, you, you know, the whole notion of pretty poetry is something I'm wary about. This poem that I just read is not pretty. It's troubling, isn't it? Yeah. It's troubling. And in the light of the Parisian tragedy, it's it's real. And that's what gives courage to me. And that's why I love Homer, by the way, is because he those two poems are so real. They are so um, fearless would be a good word. So fearless, and so just just say it the way it is, and don't don't kid yourself. You know it. This this is how it is, and it's got every range there is from sentimentality to brutality, savagery, grotesquery, 
to honor and real honor, not not pseudo honor, but real deep honor and real deep nobility. I love it. lately one of my one student I ran into said I was thinking about a student who was a poet here and you wouldn't know his name. He should have been famous. I don't know if he is. I said he was such a wonderful student. She said, "Well, that's because he was noble." I said, "Hey, you're right. That's what he was or is. I don't even know anything about him. He's a noble person." And I thought, "My Goodness, we never even think of that as a quality. We never talk about it. We don't run on it as election. I mean, a real nobility. And of course, Homer has that as well as the brutality. I mean, we, we have that range. In fact, I do have a poem, if I can find it, that I wrote on Homer, why I teach Homer. Do you want to hear it? Yeah. Um, if I can find it. Whoa. Um. Maybe I didn't bring it. How long ago? Just a few days ago. Oh, you just wrote it recently. I wrote it very recently, well, but I didn't bring it. Didn't I can maybe it. say it. I don't know. Or you can talk about it. I can talk about it. Well, what I do is I say the first line is um, why I teach Homer. The warriors hate each other's guts and tear them out. The people serve their fates, tender the good earth, and sometimes can honor, sometimes can recognize the gods. The heroes magnify the whole. The gods themselves regard our quaintness with indifference, but still they like their favorites. The poem itself loves everyone and can critique its own. And so I've got sort of these layers, as Homer does. I love that poem, actually. You know, because I think that a lot of people, when they read Homer, they just think it's a, somebody, it's just war and blood and guts, and it is. But it's not just. I remember when you yeah. read us the um, the Shield of Achilles yeah. section. Yeah. And and I mean, I felt like you um, you were saying you know the whole world is there. The whole world is in well, just I in that one description. That. I yeah. do believe yeah. that. I believe it utterly. Yeah. I think it's an amazing masterpiece. Amazing. And you know that you all know enough about Achilles that during the he is so frightening as a force that even Hector, who is noble, and he's the prince of Troy, who's a great warrior, fabulous, the best that Troy has. He, Homer has the nerve, it seems to me, to make him afraid of Achilles and make him run, run. And he runs away. And that makes me cry. It's just so true. He sees the real power of war and of that warlike spirit, and he's brave as any man can be. Absolutely. He's the bulwark of the city of Troy, but he runs away. He's so scared. And um, gosh, it makes me think of, of Paris right now because 
after that bombing, they were being so brave and saying, we're not going, no per, no fear. We're, we're, you know, we're not going to be afraid. And then today, just today, they panicked like mad, just like Hector, panicked and ran in a great stampede because, of course, they're afraid. Try not to be. Yeah. But anyway, so, yeah, I do think it's all there, and I think that it's a wonderful uh, thing. I'm talking mainly about the Iliad, but the Odyssey, too. Is And uh, Laura and I have talked all the time about uh, doing those poems with, with, with uh, veterans, and uh, I've talked to you about that, uh, because both poems, the first one is about war and its deadliness, with no holds barred, no phoniness whatsoever. And and um, uh, the second one about, after you've done that, how do you feel when you come back? Try to rejoin your wife who's been gone for, you know, will she know you? Will your son know you? Uh, will your aged father be alive? Uh, will your olive trees be blooming? You know. And it's the same after well, 3,000 years. Well, it's just years. like, yeah, how do you readjust to a civilian life that hasn't known the horrors of what you've done, what you've experienced, seen, shared, you know? So, I mean, so really, if we could do it, it would be a great offering to read these with, with veterans of all kinds. Any war, I don't care. Any Republican I don't care their persuasion. I don't care the country. Uh, any of them, it would be true of, you know. Yeah. So, so a question maybe with Homer as a model, is that hard for you? I mean, you have this amazing influence. You know, how as a writer, you know, what's your process? I mean, you you kind of go for that truth, that tell it like it is that you were talking about, or? Well, I'd like to think I can. I think it's not easy. Um, I do have a lot of poems that I think are kind of gutsy in that way. But I'm not trying to be that. I'm not really a political poet, although yeah, sometimes, like right now, I wish in a way I could access that better. Yeah, I think truth is a whole deal. I mean, that's that's where the courage comes from, if any. In the, uh, in the book about China, actually, uh, you're reading a, a a piece by Leonard Bernstein. Bernstein speaks of the great knowledge of death, not just personal, but maybe even the death of music that is given to us in Mahler's Ninth Symphony. Oh, after reading this last week, I cried and cried and slept painfully on the shrapnel of those thoughts all night, and we can't stop it. Demonstrate all we like, be thrown in jail all they like, we can't stop it. The question was asked innumerable times, why did the Jews go to their, to their deaths like sheep? And the answer that I'm beginning to feel is to show us how. Sex and death, Eros and Thanatos. Yeats says these are the world's two themes. These are the two themes of poetry. Yeah, so, I agree. And, and in this book, well, you wrote it, so. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! Finally, I agree with myself. <laughs> that's, that's encouraging. That's really encouraging. <laughs> so, so the book is interesting because it's sometimes it's personal kind of ruminations, and sometimes it's what's happening, and sometimes it's kind of these deep, uh, you know, thoughts about life and kind of getting into that intensity and kind of 
asking, you know, what's important, what are the most important things, and what are we, how do we wrestle with things? Well, you know, when I was, again, the, the wonderful 60s, the wonderful weird 60s, when you could teach anything, I, they let me teach a course that's got a stupid name, but I still believe it. It was called um, Metaphor and the Metaphoric Way of Living, which very pompous stupid title um but, but they let me teach it anyway and and in truth i really believe that this is sort of what you're saying that these levels of access to historical thought and to emotion and to shared emotion and historical emotion all of that is 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 a sort of metaphorical way of living and i do i did want to teach that i'm sure i failed because it was just so pompous or something it was so preposterous to try and manage a title like that you know so i only taught it one semester and, and i backed off <laughs> yeah so uh, you also mentioned rilke as, oh, Rilke's as a, wonderful. As an Rilke's a big influence. He's beautiful, far-seeing, very um, again courageous. Oh, I always do love courage. I think it's nutritional. <laughs> Breakfast of champions. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Here's another section from this book. I, I love this one, and I've kind of. Uh, and this one, I think you're talking about uh, solitude and, try, and trying to find that quiet moment that we were talking yes. about and that uh, Constantine yes. mentioned. I awoke alone in the night, thinking of Sappho waking alone in the night. It was very still, unusually so for this whiplash end of Taiwan, only the tiniest breeze. And just as with her, Sappho, thousands of years ago, the moon was full and pouring down light. I got out of bed and stood for a long while, as quiet within myself as the trees and rice fields before me. Without thinking, I thought about the magical transformation that occurs everywhere within any given 24-hour period, nocturnal life. In the interests of a good night's sleep, most of us only seldom observe the amazing absence of human endeavor. I must have stood silently for half an hour before I realized I was standing there silently. <laughs> Almost instantly, a kind of restiveness moves in, and one is no longer just there like the pearly tufts of the pompous grass, like the barely stirring leaves. How little peace we are able to sustain. And I guess my question is, um, how does... Well, you talked about nurturing, right? Courage nurtures you. Yeah. How does nature or quiet or how did, what else? Uh, well, I, uh, all my life, I've, I've, I've loved um, solitude, I guess. And it just quiets us to listen to the world. It quiets us and, and, and brings us, I mean, gosh, it's, it just puts us in connection I don't know how to explain it. It's just that we shut up for a minute, you know, <laughs> and and turn things off, and 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 you know don't don't have to even chew gum or anything. We just listen, uh, or just stare. There's a I don't know Kierkegaard or somebody said philosophy stares. It was <laughs> interesting. I, I I believe in that kind of um, reverie. Always did. 
I try to get it in students' minds. And I try to, it's hard to do that, to teach in an ac academic framework and try to make reverie what you're teaching. <laughs> I wouldn't you know, know how to begin. But, you know, but that is, in fact, what I try to do. Because that's where their center is. That's where they're, they'll find their courage. It seems to me. It seems to me. I mean, I know that that's just me. So, so kind of going for inner peace or, or trying to help other people find what that is? Just, just shutting up and being quiet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I did have, so, so I brought Landing Signals, which was an anthology in which I found you, which Annie Minabroker was one of the editors of that. And, um, and maybe maybe this touches on that a little bit. Would you would you read this? Uh, Gosh, the... I've forgotten that poem. Yeah, I figured this would be oh, a long wow. time. Wow, but... this is ancient. Yeah. I don't even have a copy of so this. So it's at least, what, oh, 25, 30 it. years old. This is an old one. Uh, but Sappho is in it again, which is kind of nice. Words, comma, music, comma, silence in the rest. And, of course, that's a pun. I thought it was funny. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> You want to know how Sappho would have taken to Bruckner, what light she might have seen shining through the tympanum, and if, perhaps, leaning loose into the doorway of her chamber, her school, her thought, she would have decided for music, or have hedged, saying words were music. From Vienna, Bruckner takes over your doorways and your house. Inside your silence, language keeps on drifting down the blood, as fingers lifting notes from dark bassoons, as hands still arching over cellos. The language drifts in movements, moves upon itself, rests within the rest, both are the world, like quartz, collecting, and you are the prism, gathering as you reflect, giving back. The gathering of words in silence, the giving of music in rest, stillness drifting towards us and from us, your eyes encountering Sappho's, your heart beating with Bruckner, I've forgotten that poem totally. Thank, Thank you, you for reminding me. Beautiful. Thank you. So music, music is an influence. Classical music is in a number all, of your all music. I love all it. Music, yeah. Had a little trouble with Hawaiian music at one point, but, <laughs> 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 but everything else is. Yeah, I, I just yes, very central. And rhythms, uh, you write mostly in in free verse. I mean, it's kind of modern. Yeah, but I have a really strong rhythmic sense and I uh, in fact I've had to battle it because you watch out and it'll get sing-songy or it'll get uh, it, the music it'll call attention to itself and uh, I've got a lot of poems in which uh, it does the sound the internal rhyme the assonance I don't even think about it it's just always a very big factor in my writing and um, so I, I kind of have tried to curb it in the interest of, of, of plain speech. So you push back against I one. push back against it because I too, I'm too musical in my own mind. 
Not that that's bad. I, I can't explain it better. It's just too much is not a good thing. Do you revise? Do you go back? Yes. And, and, okay. I love revision. So Okay, so you have lots It's of, a kick. You have drafts everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've got like the marginalia. Yeah, it's fun. It's it's the, it's the really fun. Yeah. And how do you know when a poem is done? I don't. <laughs> <laughs> ever, ever, ever. Well, I did with the little poem on Homer. Because I had ended, it ended, had a little crescendo and it moved up to the poem itself, Loves Everyone, and can critique its own. So that, 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 that ended, but a lot of them are just, as, as a Yates or somebody said, we don't uh, complete a poem, we abandon it. There's some truth in yeah. that. Yeah. Do you have any big projects you're working on or anything's, uh, <laughs> anything that's kind of, that would be fun to do? Yeah. I got two huge projects. One is to try and get some poems published. I've never done it, and I'm terrible about it. Don't even want to talk about it. <laughs> uh, the other is something I've been working on since 1998 um, for, oh gosh, 17 years, I guess, or so. And I love it a lot, but it's been a bear, a really ambitious thing. I don't think of myself as ambitious. That's why I've never published. I don't, I haven't thought of myself as ambitious, but um, this is ambitious, and it, it sort of overwhelms me because it is, and I'll just be brief because I could talk forever about it. It's called Nine Nights, and it, refer, it sounds, sounds like it's scholarly, but it's not. It refers to the nine nights when Zeus, sky god, sleeps with memory, the mother of the muses, and it's that phrase that got me. Don't you love it? Memory is the mother of the arts. But to me, that's the most sweetest thing. Most sweetest. That's not good. Sweeter. <laughs> no, but I mean, but don't you, I love that, that, that memory and the divine together, sexually, are what creates one art after the other. And the, the, the Greeks had nine muses, and so I got nine nights. So nine nights they made love, and each night was different. And each one ended up in one of the conception of one of the muses, which is a daughter. They're all female, um, according to the Greeks. So I just love that, and I tried to write it. And it's been a real hard thing, because I don't want it to be scholarly. I have no desire to have it be scholarly. I don't want it to be opposite to Greek truth. I mean, I don't want it to undermine. Do you see what I'm saying? But I, I, I'm not, I don't want to be scholarly. No footnotes, be, no footnotes. Well, you want it to be new. You want it to be your own, but I still wanted, re yeah. reference what I was... I want it to be about the arts and, and about, about where they come from and how we get them. I mean, music is the, is the most complete example of where in heaven's name did we get music? I just can't even believe it all the time. What is it? And so and I feel that way about the other art, but music most of all. Um, and, um, I, of course, I love speech, too. So the word is, is, they're all wonderful. I love dance. Aren't like four out of the nine poetry? What? Aren't more than one? There's more than one out of the nine muses that are poetry, but there's lyric poetry and oh, Well, they, they blend them back then because oh. they had a sacred poetry, erotic song, and epic poetry. And I don't, I'm not faithful to the Greek 
thing. Oh, I so mean, you, like, I want to bring in even architecture or I don't talk about movies and TV series and British masterpiece and all that stuff in 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 Nine Nights because it would be jarring because it is that it is mythic in a way. Does that make sense to you? You know what I'm saying? No. No. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't want it to be false to Greek mythology. You want to over-modernize I it? Just, I just want to write my own thing. Yeah. And so it is, um, it touches on it. For example, I love the way every one of the rhapsodies, uh, memory, the, the mother of the muses, has is a voice, and she speaks, and at the end, of every rhapsody, there are nine rhapsodies, she says, if I should conceive a child from this, whatever it is, encounter or this folly or this rape or this uh, tumult or this delight, whatever the, it has been, I will, um, it will be a daughter and I will call her Cleo. That's a Greek name. Or I will call her Euterpe, that's music. Or I will call her Terpsichore, that dance. Or I will call her Nemopomene, tragedy. Comedy, many hymns or sacred song, and Urania, mathematics and physics, all that. So that's what it, it's a very ambitious. It but is. I think I've done it. I think I've finished it. You finished it with the help of uh, people, yeah. And my daughter Laura painted nine great, huge paintings, one for each rhapsody. And even took a quote from the rap, from the writing and put it on a mirror in the bottom so it reflected and echoed, because echo is a big deal in, in this, echo of all kinds. So you've got a couple of big So I've things. got that. That's a big one. Then I have a brand new one, brand new. Laura doesn't even hardly know, which is, I just love it, the sweetness of, pre of prepositions. It's my brand new poetry one. And that? I won't, no, they're just brand new. I'm so brand new that they're awful. But I mean, like, um, what I'm doing is taking taking the various pronouns, uh, prepositions. So what I have so far written is against, for, beneath, among, upon, and between. I've written a poem for each one. Poems for prepositions. Sweet, the sweetness of prepositions is the name of it. So that's a kind of new project. So you don't have any problems coming up with ideas? No, I create poems in the middle of the night. Uh, I, I'm serious. I don't. I'm so lazy. I don't get up. I don't have pen to paper. I don't do all the things they say to do. Have your little notebook nearby and your light and write it down. So that you can do it in the morning. I won't do that. I just rearrange my bed and remember it, memorize it, and then wake up three hours later and put another line to it. And that's about the only way I'm writing now. It's fun. In the middle of the night. In the middle of the yeah. night. I like it. Well, it's that solitary impulse, I yes, guess. Yes, I guess quiet, so. Yeah. Yes, I get right, Bob. That's true. Yeah. Well, I I just want to thank you. I, this uh, this has been exciting for me. I I haven't had to do very much, but uh, just listen and marvel. Really appreciate your sharing with us. I I love that line from the from the poem and landing signals, which really was. It seemed like you could have written it yesterday, or you could have written it while we were sitting here. Uh, inside your silence, language keeps on drifting down, down the, the blood. blood. 
So right, um, thank you. So anyway, thank you very much, You're Catherine, welcome. and thank, thank you, you for co- thank you to Coffee and Poets, Lawrence yeah. Dinkins, our thank producer, you, at, and thanks for coming. Thank you. That's fun.